almost the script for a Western showdown movie on the same week that United Conservative leader Jason Kenney was sworn in as Alberta's latest premier. He picked multiple fights. He's threatening the federal government with a constitutional challenge over what he calls the No More Pipelines bill that would overhaul the environmental assessment program and process for a natural resource. He promises to fight against the government's carbon tax even after the Court of Appeal in Saskatchewan ruled that the government does have the jurisdiction to impose one on the provinces. Then Jason Kenney threatened to, quote, turn off the taps, cutting off oil to British Columbia, a province that already seen gas prices as high as a buck seventy a litre, if Premier Horgan does anything to prevent the Trans Mountain Pipeline to be built. Is this just tough talk, or will Premier Kenney follow through on his threats? Is he stoking the coals of Western alienation? BC's Green Party leader, Andrew Weaver, by the way, who holds the balance of power in the NDP government there, is here to respond to that. And Mr. Weaver, always a pleasure to welcome you to Question Period. What do you make, first of all, of Premier Kenney's threats to turn off the taps to your province? Well, it's just bluster. A bluster, and it serves well in an election campaign where you're uh, trying to, you know, stoke support for the poor, downtrodden people that you're claiming you're going to pull out of poverty and and bring them to prosperity and wealth, and for and, and, and everyone will have unicorns in their backyard. That's that may well work in an election campaign, but he's now a government, and we as Canadians deserve a, a far less bluster and far more thoughtful uh, discussions. Look, you know, he can't do it constitutionally. Number one, that he would expose Albertans to the mother of all liabilities from the people of BC for any uh, damages in, in, uh, that occurred. He he knows that. His advisors know that. The British Columbia knows that. That's why we're in court immediately to say this law is unconstitutional. It's worse than that, though, because it would immediately create problems under NAFTA because the Trans Mountain Pipeline doesn't, it only about half of the stuff comes to BC. The rest goes to the US to the Cherry Point refineries. Uh, he would uh, then uh, trigger a NAFTA, NAFTA challenge, which would bring more li liability on Albertans. And then there's the oil companies who actually are entering into contracts with uh, refiners and others and who have to deliver into those contracts. And he would basically uh, undermine their ability to do so and would open a liability with them. All right, uh, but Andrew Weaver, hang on. Let's say he decides to follow through with it. He doesn't like the, the process for the Trans Mountain. And he said, go ahead, take me to court. I run on this. I'm not afraid of this. He knows that he's got the backing, by the way, to cut off the taps of Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe. Could BC or would BC actually retaliate while this wends its way through the courts? Well, first off, um, Mr. Uh, Mr. Moe is probably hurting a little bit now because his bluster has been kind of, or his bluster bubble has been popped as well through the Supreme Court decision that quite clearly pointed out federal jurisdiction is there to be able to enable carbon pricing in provincial jurisdiction. So again, more bluster. Uh, the reality is, is that cooler heads will prevail because uh, Canadians want it to prevail. I think his, uh, the, the whole bluster that's happening is actually backfiring. It's, 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 it's quite uh, remarkable to see the level of uptake, for example, of electric vehicles, of hybrids, uh, the push to build transport in this, in this, in this province, and, and that is a direct so, consequence of the high gas prices. Uh, Andrew Weaver, hang, you mentioned this Saskatchewan Court of Appeal that ruled three to two uh, in favor of the government that they do have the jurisdiction to impose the carbon tax. Okay. What does that do to this fight over the carbon tax? You still have Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Ontario saying, I don't care, we'll take this to the Supreme Court. The fight is hardly over. What's your view? Well, this will go to the Supreme Court of Canada then. And again, uh, we'll expect a decision there. I, you know, I... The sad thing is, I think most British, I mean, we know every, in every single riding in the country of Canada, people want our low elected leaders 
to deal with the issue of climate change. They just, they're looking at the news. They're watching what's going on in the Ottawa, Gatineau, and New Brunswick area. They remember the forest fires in BC. It seems to me that Albertans, uh, Mr. Kenny, seems to have forgotten the forest fires that, that plagued his province re re uh, recently. We know the cause of that. We know that increasing greenhouse gases is causing warming. We know the result in terms of extreme precipitation, floods, and, 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 and fires. We know it's going to get an awful lot worse, and we know that Canadians want elected leaders to do something. So, Mr. They can continue down their path, but again, it's bluster. We should actually be recognizing that the environment, the climate system, uh, frankly, issues like poverty as well, they don't know what political party you belong to. They want our elected but leaders to actually roll up their sleeves, get on with it, and actually deal with these issues. And bluster does not help. All right. You, you keep saying bluster, but look, uh, the, the courts now ruled that the, uh, the federal government has jurisdiction over the car on the carbon tax issue yeah. but the courts may also rule that the federal government has jurisdiction to build the trans mountain pipeline so can you have it both ways you want to respect the courts on the carbon tax great also should you then stop your fight and respect the courts that the federal government has jurisdiction to have a pipeline the trans mountain pipeline and end that fight the british columbia government asked the question a test case is it possible for the province, it believes it does, to regulate that which crosses its boundary because the province is on the hook for any cleanup? It's not saying about whether a pipeline should be built or not. It's questioning through a test case whether diluted bitumen, it can regulate what is in the pipeline. The province is not saying you can't ship refined fuel to BC. The province is saying we're very prof concerned, profoundly concerned, about the increasing export of diluted bitumen on our coastline because of the environmental concerns right. about a spill when it happens. Uh, people in Kalamazoo would probably be behind us there saying we understand your concerns. And so, so, so again, uh, I, I just, I, I just wish that, the, that we would have uh, a more thoughtful discussion about this because, you know, on the one hand, Mr. Ford and Mr. Kenny, Mr. Ford is, is, is not a climate change denier. He, he has said publicly that things are going on and we need to deal with it. Well, so what are you going to do, Mr. Ford? That's the question Canadians should be asking. Mr. Kenny, what are you going to do? And, and frankly, bluster and, and pivoting to the world is 6,000 years old is not going to deal with the prob problems that we have before us. And I think Canadians are, 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 are wanting our elected leaders to work together to solve these. And, and that's what we're committed to do here in BC. And we're demonstrating that by two parties who have a long history of not working together, of, of working together to ensure that we put people first and public policy first in right. the province of British Columbia. It's tough. It's a lot tougher, but you've got to put your ego aside and you've got to actually work for people as opposed for your own political career. All right, I've got to leave it there. A Green Party leader in British Columbia who holds the balance of power out there. Andrew Weaver, great to have you on the program. We will talk to Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe later in the program. But coming up, the Saskatchewan court has greenlit the federal government's carbon tax. Is it too soon to call it a victory? MPs are here to debate that one. Stay right here. Lots more to come on Question Period. A close win for the federal government as the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal clears the way for the carbon tax, a ruling that they do have the jurisdiction to impose a tax on the provinces. But two of the five judges dissented. So where does the fight go from here and what impact will this decision have on the fight for and against 
the federal government's policy on carbon. Let's bring in MPs to debate this. Sean Fraser is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Environment Minister. He's with me in studio. Lisa Raid is the Deputy Conservative Leader. She is in Toronto. And Rachel Blaney is a BC NDP MP. She's also here in Ottawa. Good morning to all of you. Mr. Fraser, I'll start with you after the court of appeal in Saskatchewan ruled the government has the jurisdiction to impose a carbon tax. What does that mean for your government in terms of what you might do next? Uh, well, obviously, this is, uh, just confirms what we already expected would be the case, that our legislation uh, conforms with the Constitution. Uh, one of the things that I found really interesting that the court pointed out uh, was that they, they acknowledged climate change uh, is an ex existential threat, but they also indicated that uh, carbon pricing is an essential aspect of any plan to reduce emissions. Uh, we're going to move forward with the plan. Our, our plan remains unchanged. Uh, we're going to implement the measures that we campaigned on and that we laid out in our plan to fight climate change that are having a positive impact today. Uh, Lisa? Rate your party, your your leader does not like the carbon tax. You, so many pro four provinces are fighting against it. Is this a big blow to the fight against the carbon tax? Where do you go from here? Well, um, you say that it's just the parties. It's actually the people of Canada who are clearly saying in their legislature votes in the provinces across this country that they don't want to have any part of Justin Trudeau's carbon tax. And I would quibble with Sean about the statement that the court has weighed in on whether or not having this kind of levy or tax is important to an overall plan and emissions. In fact, the court was very clear, and they said they're not here to talk about the efficacy of the measure, just whether or not it's something that the federal government was allowed to do in a separation of powers. And it was a very close decision, three to two. There's lots of meat in the decision to go through. And I understand that Premier Mo has announced that they are going to seek to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. So more to come. All right, and uh, Premier Mo will join us later on the program, I should point out. Uh, Rachel Blaney, still, so what are they going to do? Yeah, they, they, they want to continue the fight, but this is a pretty significant court ruling. Wh where do you see this carrying on uh, the policy re regarding a carbon tax? Well, I think we all know that this is going to end up in front of the Supreme Court of Canada when you have that many provinces that are doing this work. I think Canadians are mostly concerned about the realities on the ground, which is we are all seeing the impacts of climate change. So when we look at that, part of the concern, I think, of a lot of the students that we're seeing that we're speaking out today we saw that happen uh, with the Prime Minister and, and I'm seeing it in my community is they want to know what's the plan how's it going to roll out when the Liberal government is presenting things like Stephen Harper's tar uh, emission targets when they're still allowing subsidies to go to the oil sands when they continue to do all of these things that don't really take the bull by the horns you know when when Canadians are paying carbon taxes but when you look at the biggest emitters are paying substantially less how is that fair and how is that really a plan towards addressing climate change uh, well, well I mean you see the NDP the Conservatives say you're going too far the NDP says you're not going nearly far enough but I, I'm intrigued now um, there's going to be more court cases in Ontario um, does the government continue the policy and does this have an impact on other issues? Jason Kenney, the Premier of Alberta, has said he doesn't like the carbon tax, but he also thinks that he might challenge you guys on, on things like pipeline issues. Does this have any impact on that? Uh, this particular decision doesn't. And one of the things that I'm incredibly frustrated with is I, I do agree with uh, Rachel that we all know climate change is real. We're seeing the impacts. And what you're seeing across Canada right now are conservative premiers who would rather spend tens of millions of dollars of taxpayers' money to fight us in court rather than 
fight climate change. Uh, we're going to go it alone if we have to. We want to work with the provinces. We want them to show leadership. We want them to get on board with a plan, not only to put a price on pollution, uh, but to reduce our emissions by helping us invest in public transit, reduce uh, the, uh, the reliance on fossil fuels for clean electricity, and a number of other measures. We've got 50 components to our plan, and it's shameful that we have to fight tooth and nail to make progress, because that's what Canadians want to see. But Lisa, do you accept that now the federal government does have the jurisdiction? Like, I understand your party wouldn't do it even if you had the power to do it. I appreciate that's what your party's saying. But the fact is, does yeah. this confirm to you that the Liberal Party, they ran on a promise to put on a national price on carbon. This Court of Appeal in Saskatchewan says they do have the jurisdiction. Do you fundamentally accept that this is now in the jurisdiction of the federal government? And what this comes down to is the fact that provinces are saying, look, we've put forward our plan to reduce emissions. They don't include putting a tax on fuel. Um, and can we still go ahead and, and work with you to reduce emissions? And the federal government says, no, everybody has to put a tax on fuel. Well, everybody in Canada does not agree that they want to have a tax on everything. And as the premier of Saskatchewan did say today, this will be decided at the end of the day in the federal election in October. And it's very simple. We as conservatives have said that we will find ways to reduce emissions that do not include putting a tax on everything that you use or everything that you own. What we will do is we will show you that you can reduce emissions without the carbon tax and we'll repeal the carbon right. tax that the Liberals have put in place. If I can jump in on that one, one of the things that the court uh, pointed out, they, they said that the federal government does have the jurisdiction to implement a minimum standard and they did specifically say that carbon pricing is an essential aspect of any climate plan that's going to have a meaningful impact no, on reducing emissions. They did not and say they said that. that it's, uh, no, it's they did not. essential but not sufficient no. on its own and that's why we're moving forward with a plan that has so many different components no, to it. No, they did not. They did not weigh in on the efficacy of the carbon tax is an essential part of it. I'll go back. I'd like to see what quote you're giving because I don't agree with your interpretation. I should say just to point out, Lisa Ray, you're saying that you will reduce emissions. We're still waiting to see the conservative uh, platform mm -hmm. uh, on that to see if they will actually meet the targets that your party voted for. Uh, that remains the question. But I want to go to Rachel uh, Blaney on this. One of the dissenting opinions here, mm -hmm. or two of them, said one of the problems here is this is now an unequal tax, that the federal government is taxing four provinces differently than the rest of the, the provinces and territories, and that the dissenters felt that that's improper. Is your party comfortable with the federal government imposing unequal taxes? You get a tax in that province, you don't. They, they thought that was unconstitutional. Where are you on that? Well, I think what we really need to look at is the fact that this is really dividing Canadians. And I think, you know, when you speak to that about that this province gets this and that province, I think it also breaks down to what rural and urban communities get the realities on the ground. I represent a real rural riding. We have a lot of resource development. So when I hear the Conservatives through Lisa saying, well, we're going to put together a plan about climate change, we certainly never saw that but Does that mean you before. would not support a carbon tax if it's unequally applied or year the NDP would have a carbon tax for everybody that you'd impose it? Well, you want to impose it, especially on the people that are making the biggest well, impact. And right it, now, why would you impose it on Quebec where they have a cap and trade? Is that what you're saying? That would be unequal. Well, I think you have to look at and work with individual provinces, and I think and territories, and that's what we're not seeing happen here to the same degree. So you need to work with them. You have to figure out where your emissions are, and then you have a plan moving forward that actually gets that done. So to be we're fair, that's what Saskatchewan's saying. They said we had a plan. We just we'll get there. That's what Ontario's saying. So I'm just trying to figure out. So when you hear that, last word on that, Mr. Fraser. 
fundraiser. I mean, the NDP saying you got to work with them. That's what you're doing. But a lot of provinces say you're forcing them to do something. Like Ontario's idea is you're forcing us to meet targets that we're already meeting. Why are you imposing an extra burden on us just so you can say you're putting a price on carbon? What's the answer? Uh, certainly. So what our legislation does is establish a, a minimum standard. In my opinion, we have a responsibility not just to do something, but to do the most effective thing we know how. We know that the Nobel Prize winner in economics last year recommended that this is the best thing you can do to transition to a low-carbon economy. We're saying let's take the advice of the experts and set a minimum standard, which you have to meet. And if you want to go further, then we support your effort to do so. All right, I got to leave it there, Mr. Fraser, Ms. Raid, and Ms. Blaney. Great to have all three of you on a very uh, important court case. There will be more challenges to come, and we'll be watching for that. But coming up. The former U.S. ambassador to Canada, Bruce Heyman, is sharing never before her details about a very tense relationship he had with the former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. He joins us next with his startlingly candid new memoir. Stay right here with Question Period. In a candid and at times startling new memoir, the former U.S. ambassador and Vicki Heyman, his wife, reveal how they were frozen out by the Harper government as soon as they arrived. And it was much more tense over the Keystone XL pipeline than anyone first realized. But the Heymans hit hard at President Donald Trump as well, arguing that he's undermining the critical Canada-U.S. relationship right now. How much damage is being done? To talk about the new book, The Art of Diplomacy, we are now joined not only by the former U.S. ambassador to Canada, Bruce Heyman, but by the person many consider his co-ambassador, <laughs> also the co-author of the book, Vicki Heyman. Thanks, Evan. Great to see you guys, who so I've gotten to know Good very to be well. Here. Uh, strengthening the Canada-U.S. Uh, relationship in times of uncertainty is the subtitle of this book. Correct. What you do at the beginning, I'll start with you, Bruce, is you pull back the curtain when you arrive, and I remember it well, you say in the book you were, quote, frozen out, yeah. that's your word, by the Harper government. Yeah. What happened? So, look, I arrive and we get a phone call that um, Foreign Minister Baird wants to see me. And this is before I even presented my credentials, which, you know, is a no-no in diplomatic world. And the first thing he says to me is, you're basically going to fix the Keystone Pipeline. And I said, no, 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 it's a process. This is what happens. This is what we're doing. And I said, let's work together on a number of things. Let's get together and let's find ways to do things together. That was the last meeting I ever had with John Baird, even though I requested over and over. And did you have other meetings that were canceled after? But here's what happened. So it wasn't that meeting that was the real tipping point. It was really about a week and a half later that the U.S. government made the decision not to make the decision on Keystone because of Nebraska. And so we let, you know, Secretary Kerry calls John Baird. He's out in the Middle East, I believe, on a plane. And they make several calls. They finally connect. And they say, look, we're not saying no. We're just not making the decision. Canadian government's so upset that <clears throat> 10 o'clock on a good Friday night, we get a phone call that I'm getting called in by the Canadian government on Saturday morning. Rare. Doesn't happen. Right. Like, you know, you don't... You don't call ambassadors in with allies in this way, but obviously very upset over Keystone. I had this meeting. After that meeting, Monday morning, all my ministerial meetings were canceled. How did it change under Justin Trudeau? Because you guys developed a personal relationship with the Trudeaus. How did life change, Vicky, under the Trudeaus? Well, 
you know, we had so many uh, pieces of the agenda that we were aligned on. I mean, the first thing that um, that the Prime Minister did was work on, at, was a COP summit, working on the environment. That was something that we believed in. You know, the drumbeat of social justice and kind of taking this uh, real approach to uh, protecting rights and individual rights and freedoms. And there was a feeling at that time during the campaign that was very similar to the feeling that we had during the Obama, the Obama, first Obama campaign in the years of a galvanizing of young people and a really, a really strong look at. Um, but it was about working together. Yes. It was about the attitude and the attitude of, look, we have differences and we may disagree on things, but we don't need to be disagreeable in our attitude and approach. Right. And so the Trudeau government and all the ministers, they were like roll up their sleeves and say, okay, we disagree on this or we agree on this, but let's get work done. All right. Uh, when it's when, and you talk about the election night, Donald Trump beats Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. You guys were taken off guard. You were shocked. You were appointed by Obama. You knew that's it for you guys. Right. Uh, did you think ever to stay on? Did you ask, you know what, I would like to stay on and represent Donald Trump. What was your decision? So let's first say this was a family debate that was going on from the, from the night of election till almost just before Inauguration Day. And that debate between the two of us was, you know, I was the ambassador. I swore in over the Constitution. I sat down and said, I represent the United States of America. And my view is that I could have easily been helpful to the Trump administration by handing over information, working with them, collaborating, and be helpful for a smooth transition. And so I offered that up. Vicky's perspective was, hey, time out. You're, you're the representative of the President of the United States, Representative Barack Obama, and can you possibly be the representative of Donald Trump? Could you have? It'd be very, 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 very difficult. I don't think I personally could have do that. And I think that came home to me when I returned back to the United States just a few days after uh, President Trump was uh, sworn in on Inauguration Day and the Muslim ban took place. And I thought to myself, how could I sit here in Canada? How could I have sat here in Canada representing President Trump with but something e like Evan, that? Evan, when we sat down and had these conversations and we couldn't reach a resolution, we turned to our good friend, Vice President Biden, who came here to Ottawa and Vicki and I in the car ride from the airport to the celebration right. of, uh, for, that was held for him here in Ottawa, we had this conversation with him. And I st we laid it all out just the way we laid it out for you. And he turned to me and turned to Vicky and he said, first thing is you're not going to like what I'm going to tell you. I said, okay. He said, okay, so first, not going to happen. They're not going to ask right. you to stay. And he says, second, if they do ask you to stay, stay. We need people who understand how this government operates and what's happening and can protect these relationships. We need people like you to stay, at least in the transition period. I'd yeah. never be. Donald Trump's selected ambassador, but I could have provided a much smoother transition. You were here when they negotiated part of that, uh, the lion's share of the new NAFTA deal, the USMCA right. as it's called there. Yeah. Now you're looking at it under Donald Trump. Donald Trump said we've got a, a new NAFTA. The Democrats now control the House. Former Ambassador Heyman, will that deal get ratified? Will we have that deal? The deal in its current form is dead. So let me be really clear that the USTR and Donald Trump mishandled this from day one. 
had they just quickly passed a deal in 2007, signed an agreement between the three countries, in 2007 or early 2018, he had the Congress, he had the Senate, he had the Mexican government in place, and there were no elections coming up here. He could have passed it, he had a score of victory, and it's done. They messed up the clock. Second, they did not collaborate or communicate with unions, nor did they work with the Democrats. So now they find themselves in a position where the Democrats and the unions in the United States have a different perspective. And Nancy Pelosi has said this from day one. Enforcement, enforcement. Labor and environment provisions need enforcement. You need these Mexican laws changed. They are changed, but we got to see if they're going to work. the Democrats are going to be the ones that are not going to vote for this. First, so from a Canadian point of view, we want certainty. We want a deal. Is it the Democrats now that won't sign this deal? No. In fact, it's even more complicated than that because the president put on steel and aluminum tariffs, and most of his own party went to visit him yesterday and told him, unless you get rid of these steel okay. and aluminum tariffs, this is no go. I think he's in a really bad place on this deal. Okay, so if the deal's dead, what does it mean for Canada-U.S. relations? Do we go back to NAFTA, or if Donald Trump cancels it, are we in economic uncertainty? That's your risk, because we have an agreement that's existed for 25 years. It works fine. It can be improved and updated, which is what we're talking about. But if Donald Trump announces the withdrawal from NAFTA, now the pressure points all increase in various places, and I think that's a risk. Fascinating book, pulling back the curtain on something, a place we don't see for, I call you the co-ambassadors because you work like that. It's been an astonishing time. Uh, Bruce and Vicki Hammond, thank you so much. Thank you. Evan. Thank you, Evan. All right, coming up, a big win for the government in a critical Saskatchewan case on the carbon tax. But is this the end of the fight? Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe joins us on the Scrum next with his next move. Stay right here with Question Period. hoping that conservative politicians, um, from Scott Moe to Doug Ford, uh, to Jason Kenney, to Andrew Scheer, will stop fighting pricing pollution, one of the great tools that we have, and start fighting climate change with us. It was a close and critical decision and a big win for the government of Canada in the carbon tax war. On Friday, the Saskatchewan Court of Appeals sided with the federal government on the carbon tax, ruling that the government does have the jurisdiction to impose it on the provinces. But Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe is not giving up the fight. He's already said he'll launch an appeal. Is it time for him to accept that the tax, as the government says, is in the jurisdiction of the federal government? Meanwhile, I should say Alberta Premier Jason Kenney is stoking the coals of Western alienation, threatening a national unity crisis and a constitutional challenge if the federal government moves forward with an overhaul of environmental assessments for natural resource projects. Does Saskatchewan share this sentiment? Let's find out. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe joins us now from Regina. Uh, Premier, thanks for joining us. You lost in court. Is the fight against the carbon tax over? I uh, know it's uh, it's just beginning. Uh, quite the contrary. Uh, the fact of the matter is, in Saskatchewan, we had a uh, what is a split decision here today uh, at our at our uh, court of appeal, a three-two decision. We had two judges that had put forward a dissenting opinion. Uh, as a matter of fact, the dissenting opinion is uh, very detailed and longer than the majority opinion. So we will be uh, filing an appeal uh, within the 30-day time period uh, to the Supreme Court of Canada and continuing uh, what this fight to what we believe is uh, not a constitutional move by the federal government. So what's the timeline? Because other provinces are also going to get in the fight, but the federal government, you heard the environment minister on Friday, Catherine McKenna, she openly said, it's over, Premier, accept it, get on board, you're wasting taxpayers' money. What's your message back to her? 
Well, I would say that the carbon tax is ineffective. It doesn't reduce emissions, and, and uh, the federal environment minister uh, should re-engage, uh, as, as they have been uh, really unwilling uh, to do so on, the, uh, on many of the initiatives that have been put forward by, by the provinces to combat climate change. Listen, Canadians should not mistake uh, climate action with a carbon tax. The two are very separate conversations. Climate action is happening across this nation, most certainly happening in Saskatchewan, in our electrical industry, our agricultural industry, our manufacturing manufacturing industries and our energy industry with our methane action, methane action plan here. Um, you should not confuse climate action uh, with the implementation of a carbon tax on hardworking families across this nation. Jason Kenney, the Premier of Alberta, says Western alienation is growing not only over the carbon tax but over the pipeline issue. Uh, is a national unity crisis happening, inevitable over this? Is it political rhetoric? What's the view in Saskatchewan? Well, I think the view actually is, is not even uh, restricted to Western Canada or Saskatchewan or Alberta, uh, but it's, it's actually uh, spread into uh, different industries, where industries are relevant across the nation. If you look at uh, New Brunswick individuals that want to go to work at an expanded, uh, potentially expanded refinery there with the construction of an Energy East pipeline, for example, uh, there most certainly uh, is, is uh, ideological initiatives that are being put forward by this federal government, uh, most notably in the way of a carbon tax, but also in bills like Bill C-69, Bill C-48, that, that so many across this nation uh, ultimately oppose because they have no substantial environmental gains. They only have uh, economic pain. And the fact of the matter is, is uh, that Canadians are, are starting to figure this out. We're seeing it at the ballot box in provincial elections. And quite frankly, I think it will show up at the ballot box this fall in the federal election. I got you for a couple more seconds. Premier, do you back uh, Jason Kenney's turn-off-the-taps legislation? Uh, about British Columbia, if, he, if they don't, if they oppose the pipeline, he'll stop shipping oil. What's your sense? We, we won't be there to fill up the tanks uh, of British Columbians, as we would be the next uh, the next jurisdiction uh, to go to for that for that product. Uh, we won't be filling them up if Alberta turns the taps off. So you would say we could say we just support uh, Alberta in that initiative. Always have. Wow. Okay. That that's fascinating. Uh, all right. Well, you know, BC says there's no jurisdiction to do that, but we'll find out. Uh, Premier Scott Moe, I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Evan. All right, let's bring in the scrum to comment now. Uh, Joyce Napier, our bureau chief here in Ottawa, is here. Uh, Tanya McCharles, the correspondent for the Toronto Star here, senior reporter in Ottawa, and our CTV chief co political commentator, Craig Oliver, is here. The scrum is here. Wow, that was, uh, what do you make? First wow, of all, let's really talk about the decisions a lot there. Tonda, uh, you heard uh, Premier Mo, but first, your, your gut reaction to the, the court's decision and what it does to the fight. I think the, the, the court decision gives great weight to those who argue the federal government has the right to act in the, on the environment in this case and, and regulate. The, court, the, the Saskatchewan court bought that this wasn't a tax. It was a regulatory charge, they said. And they also bought that the federal government has the power to establish a minimum carbon pricing scheme across the country. And in that respect, totally within their game. But what it does, I think, is it changes the political dynamic as well, right? It gives, it gives the proponents a little bit more ammunition. But that dissent, Scott Moe's right, that dissent is really strong. It yeah. ran almost 100 pages and you know thank God for dissenting judges a lot of the people think that you know someday they're they'll rule the, the the world and so he's hanging his hat on that Joyce your reaction to to the court's decision well the interesting thing is that dissenting decision is what's going to keep this alive in court right. right this is why they can appeal this this is why other provinces will rely on it as well the arguments of the dissenting judge are what these 
provinces are relying on. And this is what, these are the arguments that will end up at the Supreme Court of Canada because I heard Scott Moe, he's not the kind of fellow that's going to give this up and nor are the other premiers going to give it up. So this is going to go on and on to the Supreme Court. But I still think that the best decision and most important one will be the uh, uh, election on right. in October. What are our fellow Canadians going to decide. And in that respect, Scott Moe's wrong on this case. The, 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 the recent elections that saw provincial governments change were not all on carbon right. pricing. They were balance. on inc booting incumbent governments who'd stayed too long out. Uh, Craig, your reaction to the decision well, first? I, I think that, uh, first, this was a decision not about uh, whether or not carbon taxes are a good idea, not even about climate. It was a decision about powers. And they came down clearly on the idea that the federal government does have powers to exert and use in areas of, of provincial jurisdiction. No question about that. And that also backs up a similar decision from 30 years ago uh, in, in another province. Uh, I think uh, the other point is that I think what the federal government's going to hope to do now is do with climate what Brian Mulroney did with free trade. In other words, turn this into an election centering on the whole issue of this decision and the issue about uh, about a carbon tax. That's dangerous because Joe Clark did something similar and lost his election to Pierre Trudeau. But I think that's the direction the federal government's going to have to go in. All right, if anyone thought that Jason Kenney stands alone in his turn off the tabs legislation, you just hear what Scott Moe said. He said, we will not come to BC's rescue. We will support Jason Kenney. I was... My jaw dropped a little there, Tonda. What do you make of that? Because that gives us some insight into how profound this so-called Western alienation and this fight might be. It gives you some insight into the political determination of Justin Trudeau's uh, rivals, but I don't know that it gives you necessarily insight into um, whether there's a broad-based uh, sentiment among all Western provinces for secession or, or breaking up the country over this or, you know, uh, punishing the people of B.C. to that extent. Um, but I think that, look, there's a lot of political gamesmanship, yes. and I think there's a real risk with some of that rhetoric. And, and it's starting to sound more like a Western fight more than Western alienation here, because it's the two Western provinces fighting against another Western province. There's, you know, maybe they all feel alienated, but right now this is what it sounds like, like a fight. And I don't know about you guys, but I looked at the polls in British Columbia, and a majority of people in British Columbia were in favor of, of the, of the uh, pipeline. So I'm not understanding, same poll I saw in Quebec, so I'm not really understanding here the, 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 the conversation that is going on between the provincial and the federal governments. Mr. Maybe they're not looking at the same well, polls. I also think that Kenny and others, uh, conservatives, think that Trudeau is on the ropes. They think that he's a dead duck as a prime minister, and so they can push as hard as they're pushing and, and, and get their own guy in there. Uh, you know, I think this government is still in contention. Uh, if you look at the numbers closely, in Ontario, they're not very far behind. I think they're still in a position where they can probably get themselves at least a minority government with a little bit of help. And I think that a lot of the uh, uh, conservative opponents are going a little bit far in assuming that they're finished and therefore we can, we can give them the coup de grace. Well, I can tell you this, there's going to be a fight. If you listen to Scott Moe and Jason Kenney, I'll tell you that. It yeah. will be a fight and the provinces will play a role. We've got to take a short break. When we come back, we will pick up the debate over uh, the carbon tax 
legal decision that we just heard, but also a high-profile Liberal MP is not running again and has just admitted to CTV News that he will testify against the government in the high-profile Mark Norman trial. Is this a sign of internal dissent inside the Liberal ranks again? We'll take all of that next with our special guest, Green Party leader Elizabeth May. Stay right here with Question Period. So the fight over the carbon tax may well be central to the upcoming federal election, but the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal ruled in the government's favor on Friday, saying the government does have the jurisdiction to impose a carbon tax on the provinces. Where does that leave Saskatchewan, Ontario, Manitoba and New Brunswick and Andrew Scheer, all of whom oppose it? To talk about that, to talk about what Jason Kenney, the Premier of Alberta, calls Western alienation and a potential constitutional crisis, and a high-profile Liberal who's announced he's not running again, the scrum is back. Tonda McCharles is back, Joyce Naper is back, Craig Oliver is back, and our special guest for this round is Green Party leader Elizabeth May. All right, Elizabeth May, welcome to the Scrum. The, the other panelists have already had their view on, on the decision, but I think obviously your view would be pertinent. What do you make of the impact of the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal decision? It's not a surprise. I mean, I, do, I did take constitutional law back in the day, and the federal powers of taxation and the matters of national interest, which the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal really focused on, is this piece of legislation in pith and substance something about the national interest? And there are a number of threads through the Constitution that support the government's backstop federal price on carbon. Uh, certainly the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal was persuaded that this is a law in the dealing with an issue of national importance, and that's why under the peace order and good government provisions, they are absolutely on strong footing. You right. know, historically, uh, in the past, I think uh, many times, especially with the Supreme Court, uh, the courts have sort of wanted to reduce federal power. They wanted to uh, protect provincial authority. But in this case, they've clearly gone in a different direction, at least for a start. And they've decided to expand federal power in certain areas, especially this. And they've done it unequivocally uh, so far. And now there are other cases to come. And I think it will be interesting to see whether other appeal courts in the other provinces we've been talking about come to the same decision as this. If they all do, it may never have to go to the Supreme Court. Because in law, as, as Elizabeth May, they talk about pith and substance. We talk about raw politics. What's yeah. the raw politics well, of this battle? Oh, Elizabeth yeah. May's got to be happy today, right? Because yeah. the raw politics of this people looking at it, ordinary yeah. Canadians who aren't going to dig down into the weeds of that decision, think, oh, chalk one up for the federal government. Uh, you know, it adds weight to their arguments, I think, politically. It adds weight to Ms. May's arguments politically that Canada has to address this. Okay, so uh, Ms. May, let me bring you back in because Jason Kenney was in Ottawa. It was great to see Kenny and Trudeau. I mean, I don't think they're on each other's Christmas card list, but there they were. Uh, Jason Kenny basically already saying, uh, if you don't change some legislation over pipelines, uh, there's going to be a constitutional crisis. He's threatened to turn off the taps in BC. Are we headed for a big constitutional battle over pipelines, carbon, and maybe a national unity crisis? Now, this is all about the politics, as ever. And I, you know, I'm sure you all read John Iveson's column. You know, when Kenny complains that there's lots of anger in Western Canada, uh, a lot of us notice, yeah, you've been stoking that anger. So was Rachel Notley, spending millions of dollars on ad campaigns to make Albertans angry at other provinces and, the, and 
Canada writ large. We have much more in common with uh, Alberta and BC. Canadians coast to coast to coast are much more on the same page on most issues than certain elements in politics who want to create massive divisions and anger. Western alienation, constitutional crisis, what do you think of the, the Jason Kenny uh, saber rattling when he was in Ottawa, Craig? Well, I got to tell you, uh, he was beginning to sound less like Peter Lougheed and more like René Levesque. I mean, <laughs> why did he take it upon himself to basically exploit uh, the way he did uh, the whole issue of uh, independence for the province of Alberta? I mean, are we at the stage in the Confederation now where every time a province feels it's having a tough time economically and the federal government is somehow to blame, that they're going to wave a flag of independence? We're going to leave Canada? And can you imagine Alberta all alone out there negotiating with Washington who will say, we don't want your oil. We don't need your oil anymore. We, we're independent in oil. What else you got? They, they would have so little leverage, they couldn't even get to the West Coast because it's another country. Plus, you know, pipelines yeah. and climate is not an Alberta-only issue. It is a national issue. It's not only West versus East. Quebec, it was a distinct society. It was very different. Like, we're way ahead of them. We've been there, done that, and, you know, moved on. It's not that. That's not, it's not a, a, just an Alberta issue. That's the, that's the problem with it. It goes from East to West, this carbon tax and the, the, the need for pipelines. So let's have a conversation. And well, why are these people even fighting over this? Anyway, well, stop with the Largely because they can. Largely because they can. And Jason Kenney just came off exactly. a fantastically successful campaign where he got a massive mandate right. to keep talking like that. Because, by the way, he's expressing a lot of anger that Albertans feel. However, I don't think anyone around this table doubts that Jason Kenney's committed to the Canadian Federation. He's a federalist. Uh, and so, you know, he's punted this so-called referendum on splitting up, you know, uh, getting uh, on equalization and getting out of that program well down the road. Right. I think this is a lot still of campaign rhetoric and, it's and threats, and it's popular. Right. But he should stop yeah. with the Alberta Brexit and deal with the, with the legitimate issues the province has with the federal government. It's a, it's a, it's a tried and true playbook, let's face it. Right. Danny Williams did it, Rennie Levesque did sure. it, yeah. Robert Bressa, well, you know, they all sort of threaten. Well, let me tell you who's threatened to separate and is separating from the Liberal Party, Andy Leslie. This is a high-profile uh, MP, Andy Leslie, days after the retired Lieutenant General announced he's not going to run again after only one term. CTV News learned that he's set to testify against the government in the controversial Mark Norman trial uh, if he's called to go there. Norman, the former second-in-command of the military, is charged with breach of trust, leaking cabinet confidential documents related to a shipping contract. Tonda, uh, Norman denies it. What are the optics of Leslie not only not running, but testifying against the government? They're particularly bad at this time, coming off the winter that the Trudeau government has had. They're bad in the wake of all the trouble the government's had around rule of law and, and political interference. But he advised the defense that he would testify for the defense a year ago before all this other stuff happened, I expect he's going to be a character witness. He served right. with Mark Norman. I expect that's what he brings to that case. He brings to the table uh, a view of the soldier and his integrity. I don't think he's going to get down into the weeds of whether he leaked cabinet secrets. George, and, and, and what's worse is that this is a case of government, maybe possible government interference in a legal case, again, that will happen just as the political parties are ready to go into an election. So is this going to hurt the Liberals? I can't see any scenario where it would not hurt the Liberals, although it is a complex, complicated case. I don't know how many people will be following it closely, but it's bad. Uh, Craig, last word. Well, when Jane Philpott left, you remember she said she'd lost faith in the government and in the Prime Minister. 
you get the feeling, at least sort of, uh, that uh, that he, this greatly admired general, uh, who was a commander of the Canadian Army, a star candidate, that's just a frisson of him having the same feeling about the government that he's leaving. I think it has more to do with the fact he never got in cabinet exactly. and he never uh, took to politics. He wanted to be defense minister. He yeah. never took to politics. I got, I well, got 10 it, seconds for you, Elizabeth May. I'm just saying, Andrew Leslie's a, fi a fine human being, and this does hurt the liberal brand. All right, I got to leave it there. Uh, congratulations on your recent uh, wedding, uh, Elizabeth May. We haven't seen Thank that. Thank you. Look at that. Uh, all right, before we go, uh, thanks to everybody. Last night was the National Press Gallery dinner. You guys look pretty good. And uh, we thought uh, we would leave you with some highlight clips. So check this out before we go. And thanks for watching. And we will all be back here in seven short days. Thanks for watching. Before we begin, I need to recognize the Parliamentary Press Gallery's sponsors who made tonight possible and who contribute significantly to the hard work you all do. Our bronze level sponsor is once again the Aga Khan Foundation. At the silver level, we've got the Government of India. And finally, this year's Press Gallery dinner's gold sponsor is none other than SNC-Lavalin. Thank you all for your donations. Thank you for your donations. I'm going to warn you ahead of time, I didn't put a lot of effort into this tonight. I'm working very hard on my climate change plan. And that's more of a priority. I just feel a little bit bad for the Prime Minister and for Bill Morneau because based on the media anticipation, I think my climate change plan is going to get more attention than the last Liberal budget this year. So. Many of you will remember that double-ender I did back in January when I said something that I, I truly regret. You'll recall my exact words were, who accused who of white supremacy? Tonight, I want to correct the record. And the answer is so obvious to me now. I should have said, who accused whom of white supremacy? Hopefully, that will stem the tide of hate mail I've been receiving from English teachers across Canada.